says, get that India, big boy. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Tip Sheet Podcast. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as 4020. Joining me on one of the more bleary and bleak and rainy days that we've seen in Sydney in most recent times is my good mate, 60s. Bit of time to sleep and rest and think and combobulate and discombobulate and everything that goes into that process on the grand final, mate. How are you feeling now? Fast forward a few days. Mate, I could take a photo of outside and just say, Mood, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Yes, big, feels, big true. Yeah, look, we've got, we are we are continuing with our our podcasts, and and for people who uh, enjoy the podcast, look, the content's going to continue on the Cumberland Throw. We'll have further podcasts, and just a heads up, we will be recording our news podcast with Spiro tomorrow and we'll get that up there's a, a quite a bit we want to talk about with regard to what's going on around the game and uh some of the fallout from the uh nrl grand and nrlw grand final and also this is important 40 also the kenthor net medal was on health awards were held on tuesday night so uh we'll be talking a little bit about that in tomorrow's podcast but before you know it we're going to be into the the training reports, the preseason training reports. So you don't get an off-season on the Cumberland throw. People know that. So stick with us. Uh, although we're, you know, we're, we're doing our best to bounce back from a grand final loss, and we're going to take you along for the ride. Yeah, Rugby League World Cup, heaps of content there. And obviously that means a chance for the young kids to shine in the preseason because of that mandated uh, CBA sort of break that the players get. We're not going to see our senior players back until the, the new year, I think, 60s, the ones that are at least on tour. Uh, some of the, the the ones that aren't involved in the uh, Rugby League World Cup, we might start to see some of them in December. There you go. So December for the people not taking part in that tour of England, but for those boys and girls that are over in the Rugby League World Cup there, won't seem to the new year. But you set the table beautifully, mate. Let's get into this week's episode. Well, 60s, we did our instant reaction, and it was arguably more catharsis than analysis. And I think it's time to actually dive into what happened last Sunday and get a real look at where the game was won and lost. And to do that, we're going to bring back the best. Bernie Gurr, welcome back to the tip sheet, mate. I wish our reunion was on better grounds, but it is always a blast to have you on, mate. How are you doing? Mate, I'm doing well. Um, obviously, the grand final, tough day for the team, tough day for the club and our fans. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's a broader perspective here. It was a, I think it was a very good season for the club. Um, you know, we just ran into a very, very um, good football team in, in the Panthers on Sunday night, and you know, I think our boys tried hard, but I think they were just they were just outclassed. But we'll talk more about that in a minute. Yeah, one of the things that dominated our initial discussion, both sixties and myself, was like how good that Penrith team was. Have you seen many grand final performances like that from the Panthers? Because it just seemed otherworldly. No, I've not seen many better at all. And I, you know, my first grand final was with uh, when I was a very young boy, a lad of. Uh, Went with my grandfather, the 1965 grand final, the famous grand final with St. George and South, 78,056 at the crew ground. So I've seen a lot of grand finals. Um, rarely have I seen one as, as as good as this. That first half the Panthers put together was was near football perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. We went we went with them for about the first eight to ten minutes. It was set, a lot of set-for-set football. But just at the back end of that, uh, of that opening gambit of, of, of sets – 
after around the nine, ten minute mark, you could just feel that we were starting to lose the momentum a little. Um, and I think the physical power and the energy that Penrith brought was very, very telling. The stats were pretty telling too. You know, it was uh, they had fifty six percent possession to our forty four. On top of that uh, was the eighty six percent completion to seventy percent. So when you collectively put those together. That's why you get, you know, huge run meter differential, huge post-contact differential, line breaks, tackle breaks, etc. That comes off the back of that fundamental possession, the completion percentages. But also I sensed in the game that potentially after, um, you know, the big month of football the Eels had, I just think when they looked to go, go with Penrith, they just ran out of a bit of emotional and physical energy. And I went back and looked at some stats in that, from the moment when Penrith played in round 24 and they rested their players for round 25, between the end of that round 24 game, they had 37 days and they played they, they played two games before they yeah. got to the grand final, being the semi yeah. and the prelim. Yeah, almost so the, unprecedented amounts of the moment, the moment before they ran out on the grand final, they'd, they'd played two games in 37 days. Well, the Eels had played in the same 37-day window. We'd played four games. And we played four very high-intensity games. We played the the Storm to get into the top four. And then we played Penrith Raiders and Cowboys to get there. So we played four games in that 37-day window. They played two. And I just think collectively, when we look to step on the gas, we're a little out of emotional and physical petrol. Um, and it re- I think it took a toll on us, those, those four games. And when you need that extra 1% to 5%, mm-hmm individually and then that adds up collectively i just think we might have just run out of a little bit of gas but oh look i thought the eels tried hard but you know the panthers were brilliant you know they got into the grind they they loved the grind they were very happy with that first 10 minutes where it was just back and forth football so their grind they ran hard they tackled hard their kicking was good and as, as i said at the end of about the 10 minute mark we were starting to get a bit worried about where the physical and 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 uh, emotional energy of the game was going, and unfortunately was going to the Panthers. Yeah, you could just see that that battle for territory in that grind was, it was, it was, the play was getting further and further down Parramatta's end where all the collisions were, were taking place. And yeah, you just felt like it, the in the war of attrition, in the early war of attrition, that Penrith were starting to get, uh, that edge ahead, and um, it, it seemed to be as well that that uh, that play that we put on on the second tackle to try and to catch Penrith out, it, it almost felt like that that was our last gasp in that in that period where after that point they really got the roll on. Now I'm not critical in any way of Parramatta having that shot because it it almost caught them out, and. Um, it was obviously put on for Mitch Moses' speed, but it seemed like from that point on we were struggling. Absolutely. And in the context of that, you know, around that time, uh, to your point, it did seem a little desperate, but I actually agreed with the play. And if we were doing that off the back of momentum, we just said it was a great play. We may have even scored. So I have no yeah. problem with the selection of the play. We had to do something different at that point. But, yeah, at that, from about the 10-minute mark after that initial gambit of of set for set football, Penrith settled into their relentless, ruthless style of play, which we talked exactly about this last week. That relentless, ruthless play they have, and the kick, the good kicking on the back of that, 
So yeah, no, they were they were they were outstanding. Yeah, and, and Bernie, just uh, just further to Penrith, if you if I was to put you on the spot and just say to you, look, I just want you to narrow it down to three things that Penrith do better than any other team. What what would you narrow it down to? Look, I think a couple of things. Let's narrow it down to the key areas of the game in defence. Their energy, and we spoke about this last week, their, their reset on defence after a tackle, their line speed, and they hit with power. So that's defensively, number one, what they do. And they do that for longer periods of the game than any other team. So that's number one. Number two, an attack, they just run harder than any, most other teams. Like Fisher-Harris, Leota, Spencer-Lenu, Kikau and Martin off the edges. They just run harder than most teams, in my opinion. When, when I do the eyeball test across all the teams in the NRL, I don't think any team runs harder than Penrith. And, you know, rugby league at, at its simplest is a physical game where if you run hard, tackle hard, it's a really good platform. So that's point number two. And point number three, I think they're kicking with Cleary on the back of what I've just spoken about. Their kicking is brilliant. He, he's just a master at what I call pressure kicking, whether it's long kicks, bombs, um, grubbers, chips. Like the grubber for Sorensen was just a, was a master class of... of uh, of eyes up kicking. So, you know, I know I've sort of given you a broad brush there around defence, attack and kicking, but in those three fundamental areas, they're the they're the, they're the the traits that Penrith have that they, they just do better than the other teams. Going back to the game, Bernie, the crowd itself was a spectacle. It was a sea of blue and gold. Six is myself obviously part of it. And it loomed as a potential difference maker for the Eels, a potential advantage because it was definitely Parramatta dominant. But... The Panthers took that aspect out of the game almost immediately with their early dominance. In retrospect, was there anything that the Eels, that Parramatta could have done or should have done to change momentum in those early exchanges and bring the crowd back into it? Yeah, good question. Um, and just on the crowd, like, like the atmosphere when they were playing the uh, Ode Nation and the National Anthem and then the teams running out, it was one of, to me, oh, and I was at the ground, it was one of the best atmospheres I've ever experienced. And that was principally due to the the sea of blue and gold. I don't know whether, whether the domination was 60-40 in, in Parramatta's favour with the crowd, but it certainly seemed like that. It could have been 65-35. But, um, you know, the atmosphere was electric. As far as the, the game goes, as I said before, the first 10 minutes were okay, set for set, but then we felt the momentum going away. They tried the early kick, which I liked the fact that they tried something different. Um one of the other little tactical things I thought they could have done was get their front rows a little wider. They kept Paulo and Campbell-Gillard, and even coming out of trouble, Lane and Papa Lee very close to the play of the ball. And again, we had this problem in the semi-final where it felt like in attack we were playing we were playing out of a phone booth. Everything was very tight and we were being smothered. I'd have got our front rowers a little wider, maybe do a, a decent first uh, pass from the dummy half out to the first receiver, get our front rowers a little wider. Uh, it may or may not have worked, I'm not sure. But we also needed that little bit more energy on both sides of the ball, attack and defence. And as I said earlier, I think the impact of our hard run into the grand final, when we looked for that little bit more energy, it just wasn't there. Tactically, when you're getting beaten on those effort areas, you know, just the, the grind against Penrith, it's very hard to get out of that. And Mitchell tried hard with his kicking, but of course, when you're kicking at some kicks he was doing from the 30 metre line, it's really just kicking it as far as you can, but you know Edwards or the wingers are going to catch it on the full and then they can bring it straight back to the, you know, the 40 metre line. So 
I don't think there was a huge amount they could have done once they weren't able to go into that little bit of extra energy and emotional commitment. Now, um, Dylan Edwards, he had one of the best games at fullback that I can ever recall. Maybe Inglis might have been um, right up there in his performance with uh, Souths in their uh, title win. But he was really, Dylan Edwards was a worthy recipient of the Clive Churchill medal. Did you have anyone else in the Panthers team in contention for that? Yeah, I think there was a few in contention. I think Edwards was a, a worthy recipient. Um, you know, he's had, he, he had a sensational final series, sensational year, and he was terrific in the grand final. And, you know, he had a couple of those those key moments like the cover tackle and a couple of terrific runbacks that really stick in people's mind. But, you know, clearly he was a master at seven. I thought Leota was terrific and Fisher-Harris up front. They were dynamite. You, it's very hard to say you can get a, two front rowers play better in a big game than those two collectively. And the other guy I thought, in, particularly in the first half, was Liam Martin. I thought he was terrific out on the right edge. But across the game, it's hard to go past Edwards. Uh, the seven, if they play well and win, which clearly did, they're always hard to go past, and they've tended to dominate Clive Churchill medal voting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, clearly was probably the closest to Edwards, but clearly a deserved winner. And on the other side of the scope, looking at the Parramatta Eels, this was an area where 60s and I found ourselves almost talking contradictions when we were doing our initial breakdown in the post-match. But were there any Eels players who could hold their heads up high after the game? Yes, yeah, certainly. I think there were. And I know look, everybody was disappointed with the result, but... I think uh, I think the effort was there. I know people were. I've written. I've sent a few things where fans were not happy that we you know it didn't appear that, that they they were putting in you know the maximum effort required in a grand final. But I don't believe that. I was watching it very closely, and our players were getting very very tired. So I think the effort was there. They tried hard, but you're playing a great opposition. They're almost perfect in the first half. As I said before, I, I'm a believer in emotional energy, which then gives you physical energy. And I think we were down for the reasons I spoke about earlier around the hard run that we had coming in and the quality of the opposition we were playing. If you're out on the field at that point, it would have felt like you were rowing against a tidal wave. Um, so I feel for the players, and I, I was watching them just trying to get back into position defensively to stop the onslaught. But I thought there were a couple of players really stood out for me. I thought Reed Marnie tried so hard in his final game for the Eels. Uh, Dylan Brown tried hard. We couldn't get our game on. It was a bit like the semi-final game where we just couldn't get our game on, that game where we get momentum, our front rowers are going forward, we're getting a few offloads, we're shifting to the edges with Papa Lee and Lane quickly and Brown and Moses are engaged. We could not get that game on. But, you know, I, I have no problems with the the effort of the players whatsoever. I think they tried really hard. But I think... I think the juice had been squeezed out of the orange by the time they got about 15 to 20 minutes into the grand final after the hard run of coming into the grand final. And Bernie, as the curtain raiser for the event, we had the NRLW grand final and it was a big event for those ladies because there was a a record crowd in the ground at that stage of over 40,000 people there to, we would imagine, mostly cheering on the Parramatta Reels. Uh, What was your take on uh, the performance of our team in that grand final? Well, look, I thought it was terrific and I think it's a credit to Dean Witters, particularly as the head coach, because, you know, they were they had a very slow start to the year, so Dean was obviously trying to put his stamp and his imprimatur on how they played their football, um, but they won their last game. They then beat a quality side in the Roosters to go into the grand final, and the Roosters would have been the favourites most of the year in the NRLW, 
And then in the grand final, they're playing a quality side in the Knights. And, you know, they've arguably got some of the best players in their positions in the NRLW. Um, Tamika Upton at fullback is an outstanding player. Millie Boyle up front is a great leader and a physical presence in the front row. And their young halfback, her name slips my mind at the moment. Southwell. Southwell. Yeah. Oh, Jesse Southwell, of course. Yeah, she's 17 yep. years of age, which is hard to believe when you watch the yeah. instincts that she plays with. So you're playing a quality side. And what came out, I think, of the semi-final win over the Roosters was that the Eels played a very physical, aggressive. They ran hard, tackled hard, and they just did it better than the Roosters in the semi-final. They brought that mindset to the grand final. I thought uh, Charrington was strong again. Gail Broughton, I think, is a gun. She may have a skill set unmatched in the NRLW. She Just her running, her passing, her she carries the ball out in two hands. She just looks like a beautifully gifted player. Um, I think she's a real talent, and when she gets to play more rugby league, I think she'll fall into the very elite class within the NRLW. But no, I got out there intentionally to, to see the, the NRLW game, and I thought, you know, I know Dean Witters is a, he's a terrific young man. I know Dean uh, very well. Um, I think he's a great coach. He's got a great demeanour about him. I think the players would love him. Um, he, and he was really building something special. If that was a longer competition, I think the Eels w- w- would have got even better. So now full credit to, to, to our NLW team. They played really well, and particularly to Dean Witt as the coach. And we're going to ask you some questions about the future of the NRL team, but looking now at the NRLW, aggressive expansion is coming to the competition for new teams for the 2023 uh, iteration of the competition. But the Eels find themselves in a unique, almost a unique situation now where they've got a, a core group of players here, like almost a sisterhood that are going to try and stay together, you'd like to think. And then a young Tasha Galton that was very impressive in the 2022 season. Uh, what's the blueprint for the Eels' success moving forwards, Bernie? How do they sort of harness those two factors alongside Coach Dean Witters and go one step further even next year or beyond? Well, at a macro level, it's the same as the NRL thing. You've got to have a good development and coaching program. And the good thing for the Eels is that there's a lot of terrific young women in Western Sydney that love their rugby league. They've played touch. They've played tag. Some of them have played the tackle version of our game. And therefore, we, we have a great nursery to, to do. So we've, we've got to make sure that we, you know, scour Western Sydney and look for the very best players and get them in the system. And as you said, the Tasha Gale team was very good. So, look, I am very buoyant from a from an NRLW perspective for the Eels in the next few years if we can just get it right around the coaching and development. Um, I think that, that team will want to stay together. They've had a taste of the grand final. I think Dean Witters is, is exactly the coach for that team. I think he can develop something very special there in the next few years, and let's hope that that happens. Uh, just interestingly, because you, know, you mentioned about Western Sydney, is it surprising that Penrith at this stage haven't indicated an interest in fielding an NRLW team? Yeah, I don't know what the reason is there because, you know, they've got they've, – They've got such a good handle on their men's programs all the way from the NRL down to the SG ball and even below that. So, you know, they've got a, they've got a football factory out there. I'm very surprised. But I think, um, you know, knowing Brian Fletcher and um, Matt Cameron, you know, they won't do this till they're ready to do it. And that's from a competitive point of view and from a financial point of view. But I think, I think you'll see them come in in the next couple of years and, quite frankly, the game should want Penrith to have a a good, strong NRLW program, along with Parramatta and the Bulldogs and the Tigers. These Western Sydney clubs, it's it's just imperative that we 
we have those programs in place for the girls so that, you know, we can tap into that huge pipeline of young female talent that's playing all three versions of our game and rugby union. Um, all of that is unlimited potential for the game in West, broader Western Sydney. So, you know, when you look at it from an NRL perspective, you want the NRLW will be strong when Western Sydney is strong. Yes, yep, yep. And um, just now looking at the, uh, just wrapping up grand final day, um, two teams in the grand final. Is there, uh, and both unfortunately going going down on the day, but is there any benefit that the Eels can take from being in these grand finals, either for either team, for both teams, for the club? Definitely. Look, just from the both sets of players, so the NRL and the NRLW, just mentally, they know their teams are good enough to get to the grand final if they keep their core players together. That's a strong belief mechanism. They know what it's like. They know what the week's like, the preparation, which is very different. They know what game day, and it, 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 game day is a little different in the sense of everything up to that kickoff, it's just a little, it's just different because it feels different. The importance of it makes it different. As we talked about last week, once they kick off, it's a game of football. But how you've handled the week, how you've handled game day, how you go into that game mentally when you run out the tunnel, that's very important. They've done that now, so they know what it's like. And it's another experience they can all put on their resume and tuck away in the back of their mind that they have done it. So they've had a taste of the atmosphere. It just as importantly here, given what's, um, what's, what's occurred, they know the despair of losing. So the atmosphere yeah. that they played in front of, the despair of losing, and you could see how upset both teams were when they lost. Um, that will serve for these core group of players as a major source of motivation. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely benefits you can take out of it. And that's, that's what the coaching staff are there for, that everything that happens in a footy club, you're looking for the benefits that you mm-hmm. can take and, and use as a growing, a growing mechanism. So let's book. Oh, sorry, let's look back at the season, Bernie. Sixties myself have often spoken about signpost wins, flag planting wins, the ones that you sort of circle your your wagons around and try and build off. Was there any particular game from this season that you'd bottle up and describe as sort of quintessential Parramatta football at its best? Oh, the Eels played in some phenomenal games this year, particularly uh, at uh, Combank Stadium. It's uh, it really is becoming the you know the cathedral of Parramatta Eels football, isn't it? The the, the players love it. The fans love it. I personally think, even though Allianz is a magnificent facility at 42,000, I've been there a couple of times, it's a beautiful new facility. But at 30,000, for week-to-week rectangular football, particularly rugby league, you you can't get better than Combank. The atmosphere is electric once you get up around that 18,000, 20,000. When you get 30,000 in there, it is absolutely electric. So that's where we played some of our better games. Obviously, the Canberra game in the semi-final was very special because that was a knockout game, and we produced in a big on a big occasion. I thought the first half against the Roosters was very impressive, and I thought the first half against the Panthers, albeit that Cleary got sent off, we were clearly on top at that point. So there was t- some terrific performances, and they're just three that came to my mind, and we played that upbeat high-tempo type of football, high-energy power game off the back of that. We we were doing our offloads, and then the ball gets pushed by Brown and Moses to the edges with Lane and Papali, Gutho's pushing up. That's visually how I remember those games. And that is Parramatta. That's the blueprint. That's uh, Parramatta Eels 101 football. So, yeah, they were some of the games I remember. But, you know, I think you get, you get the feeling when you're at Combank sometimes where they're just in the groove and that type of football occurs and the players just uh, ooze confidence and you get some terrific results.
Now, of course, there is the uh, the flip side of any uh, coin, and uh, Parramatta had elements of fluctuating football through the season. I don't think we uh, strung more than three wins together, but we still ended up with a a sixteen eight record. Is there anything that you saw in the losses that occurred during the season that indicate an area that the Eels coaches really need to work on in the off season? Yeah, look, I was looking back through some of the some of the records. Sixteen and eight is a terrific record. Sixteen wins, eight losses. That's excellent. In many seasons, that'll get you to finish higher than fourth. But it just didn't work out that way this year. Um, we never lost two games in a row, which is which is very good. And but you can't sugarcoat a bit of pill. The defence needs to be more consistent. We we were eighth defensively in the NRL with four eighty nine points against us in the regular season. Uh, Penrith were 330, Sharks were 364, and the Cowboys were 361. That's demonstrably better than us. We need to be better. Mm-hmm. And the reason there is you, sometimes in a long season, you need to win games with your defence and your kicking because sometimes your attack's just not clicking, and that's that, that can happen. And sometimes your playmakers are injured and your attack's not clicking. So you have to be able to win games with your defence and kicking. And those those teams above us, they won, they won a number of games just on their defence. And you know, if if we'd have if we'd have beaten the Tigers and Bulldogs, we'd have been tied for second. Now we would have may have been tough to to topple the Sharks for second because their defensive record was so much better than ours. But you would have had the opportunity for that home semi final, which would have been critical. But you know, through it all, you know, you, you've got to look at this in a macro position too. The Eels had a, a, an excellent season when you look at it in a broader perspective. So. I think defensively, we need to be. We got better in defence near the end of the year, I think, but that's not good enough. You need you need to be better more consistently because it's like it's like banking deposits in the bank. Once you've banked those deposits of gritty, tough defensive performance, and you do that consistently, you can draw on that in the bigger games. From an yeah. attacking point of view, we were fifth. I just feel at times we could be, we could have more precision on some of our attack. We tend to be a bit unpredictable and we play well off that offload shift to the edges and that's great but there are times where we're getting good ball sets and our precision just needs to be better you know players don't run the right angle they don't run the right decoy they overrun a pass the book the pass goes behind instead of in front i think we can improve our position we finished fifth in the attacking um statistics but i think we could be a little better um in that area the other the other interesting thing here if you look over the last three years, um, the Eels are the third best performing team in the regular season behind the Panthers and the Storm. So that's a, that's a terrific record. We had 15 wins in 20, 15 wins in 21, and 16 wins this year. Only two teams were better than the Eels over that three-year p- period. And over the four-year period, the Eels were fourth best because the Roosters snuck. So when you look at the club over the last three to four years, we, the club is now a very consistent team in the sense of their finishing position after the regular season and that culminated this year by going the extra step and making it to the grand final So speaking of progression Bernie, the Eels Parramatta, they progressed to their first grand final since 2009, that's obviously a markedly improved outcome yeah, all that sort of you know, narrative about getting out of week two of the finals etc cetera, etc cetera. so here's a free prong question in that vein in what ways have the individual players the team itself and the club advanced in the last 12 months that led to this outcome, to making that grand final? 
Well, let's look at the players first. I think there was some there was some subtle improvers and some obvious improvers. I think Lane clearly took his game to another level. I think Ryan Madison had his best season, obviously, so he was clearly was was better than he was, and he found his niche there at thirteen, particularly coming off the bench at the back end of the year. And Ryan's a very very gifted player. Um, and then you had, I think, Will Panasini developed. And the other, the subtle developments too with Mitchell Moses and Dylan Brown and their playmaking roles. And playmaking is the hardest position on the field. Game management and playmakers, it's its a very, very difficult job. Hence, everybody's looking for playmakers and game managers. <coughs> Excuse me. Those guys definitely improve. You know, the good, the guys that just continue to churn out good performances, you know, Gutho, Reed Marnie, Jr., RCG, Papa Leahy, um, I thought they were continued to be good. Um, so from a player point of view, that would be how I would assess it. Parramatta, I was thinking about this during the week, Parramatta, they're a true team because we probably don't have one player that is the best player in his position. And that's probably evident when you, we get one player, Regan, Regan Campbell-Gillard in the Kangaroos. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's a real team effort, and that's a credit to Brad and the coaching staff. I think one of the things we need to be looking at from the players is we, we're probably not getting enough strike out of our back five when you compare us to the better teams. We pretend to rely on that unpredictable offload style through the middle third and then shifting it with Moses and Brown to our edges. Um, that's an interesting piece that I look at because I occasionally just don't feel we're getting quite the strike and that hurts us occasionally against some of the better teams. But, um, you know, I think the team developed. I think, you know, we can regroup and be very confident. The only thing we have to – there's a bit of a cautionary tale here. Sometimes losing grand final teams, if they're not your traditional grand final experts, as I would call them, like Storms and Roosters, they can tend to play in a grand final and fall away, thinking it's going to all happen again. For example, Canberra in 2019, but I've seen it other times over the years. The team will have to realise you've got to start again and take on, you know, a bit of a mantra that, you know, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Um, we have the ta- we have good talent. Uh, we have a good team. We're well coached. But we're going to have to start again. This will not just happen again. All the other teams are going to be working like crazy over the off-season to get better. So the team will need to basically go back and start on their fundamentals again and build another very strong season like they've just had. From the club's point of view, look, I think I've said it before, you know, the stability in the club, particularly when you look at it pre-2016, stable board, stable management, we're financially very strong on the football side, you know, getting two teams to the grand final and and just the development excitement around the NRLW team as well was fantastic. So, there's some of the advances in the players, the team, and the club that are that are, that I've observed in 2022. Well, Bernie, you've almost flagged, I think, some of the answer to this next question uh, in 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 what you've said just then. But from that team perspective, is recruitment? I mean, apart from the hard work that you just mentioned there about you know really starting again and showing that hard work's necessary, is recruitment? the only way or one of the only ways we can significantly build on 2022 going into next year? Yeah, I think there's two perspectives there, Craig. I think number one, short term, clearly recruitment. We've got to make sure that, you know, we're getting the players in to, to replace the players that are leaving. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But the second perspective is the long term. 
And again, and you guys know my theory over the years that Parramatta's at their best when they're a development club. And that's continuing to, to be done to a point. Um, I'm very glad they did a pathways review. Uh, you guys know the importance I placed on the Parramatta Junior Rep Program. Um, yep. Nathan Brown, the ex-coach, came in and did a review. I think it was a very good idea to do that review. There's a bit of fallout around that, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it was a very good idea to get it done by the board and management. I think it was a good idea. And again, we need the investment in resources. Good people and dollars need to be dedicated to that elite pathways, that junior rep program. So we have to make sure we get that right. Um, you know, we can talk about the recruitment in a minute, but at a broader level, they're the two issues that we need to look at, the shorter-term recruitment and the longer-term recruitment and development, and particularly around our Pathways program. And continuing with that theme of the roster and, and where we're at, outgoing players include Mani, Papali'i, Kafusi, Niakore, Stone, Perham, Opachik, and quite possibly Nathan Brown if uh, the club and he choose to part ways with a year left in his contract. At this stage, the incoming players include Josh Hodgson, Jermaine Hopgood, Jack Murchie and Jirai Mamasia. Deals are apparently still in the market for players, which makes sense, but there'll obviously be a huge focus on getting the contracts of Mitchell Moses and Dylan Brown done. In your opinion, Bernie, is the roster in a good place moving forwards into 2023 and beyond? I think the roster's in a good place. I think there's a bit of, a bit of work to be done. The good thing with the Eels is we have a core group of players that have been together for quite a while now, and that develops cohesion. And when you have cohesion... You know, there's a um, Ben Darwin is a, a coaching analyst, and one of his big mantras is cohesion. You have to have a group of players together for a, a little while to get that cohesion to get the success. So, cohesion is important. You have a good core group of players, but you know, roster management. You got to be very, very vigilant. It can be a moving beast. Look, I see some needs for the club. Number one, they got to get Moses and Brown done because you know how important the spine is. We need to get Moses and uh, Brown done. I think longer term, we need to be looking at who our number nine is going to be longer term. Um, you know, I look at our gains. I think Josh Hodgson's a very good footballer. I don't know what we've paid for him. So my assessment of players often is how much are we paying them? Sometimes you can pay a player, you know, 400 and that's good value. But if you're paying 600, that's diabolical. Um, so it all comes back to value. The interesting thing with Josh Hodgson, he's had an ACL in 2020. He's had an ACL in 2022. He's 33 years old. Um, he's just over 33. Um, and through the NRL era, I can't think of any player outside of Cameron Smith in that position that's really excelled at hooker, given the demands of that position physically. So it'll be interesting to see how Josh comes up. If he comes up fresh and healthy, because he's had a bit of time off in uh, 2022, he's a very good footballer and he's a competitor. So his health will be critical. I think if he's healthy, he can contribute. But again, we need to be looking longer term as when he goes in a year or two, who they replace him with. I think Hopgood, Murchie and Momosia, they're they're big. Uh, like Momosia is a big young player, and we needed a, a big young front row to come in to effectively replace Kafusi. Hopgood comes out of a very good system. They're both in the 23, 24, 25 age. Hopgood and uh, I like Murchie. I think Murchie's a, a promising player. Now, all these players, they're good players, but the challenge, and Brad's proven he's pretty good at this over the years with developing players that are promising players and taking them from a 6 out of 10 to potentially a 7, 7.5 out of 10. So I think guys like Hopgood, Murchie, Momosia, 
Brad will work hard with them to make sure that they are productive. I do see some gaps in the roster. I think we need it. We clearly need a right edge to replace Papa Lee. And I'm not merching maybe that guy. Um, he may be the guy we need to do there. And you need maybe a low cost guy there because you've got Lane on the other side who's a high cost guy in your cap. You can't have high cost guys in every position. Um, I think we need a, a left centre. I'm not sure what the thinking is there, whether Simonson continue to play there. I think we need to really look at the right wing possession, whether that's the best use of Wonga Blake's uh, talents. So the bit of a question mark for me is around the back five and whether relative to the better sides, the Panthers, the Storms, the Roosters, whether we have the strike in the back five that some of those clubs have, and I've just addressed part of that with references to the left centre right wing positions. Um, so that's going to be a challenge. But look, overall, it's a it's a good roster, but you know, there's there's some issues that need to be addressed there. Do you, uh, I didn't include him in the list then of uh, changes to the roster because he's. He's not really a roster person, but um, what do you think of the addition of Trent Barrett as an assistant coach? Do you think he's got the potential to unlock some of those aspects about the uh, not getting the best out of the Eels back five? Yeah, and can he help with that precision aspect that you're talking about? And we'll yeah, I, I, I think I think Trent Barrett can. You know, you know, Trent Barrett's got a lot of negative publicity around his uh, head coaching gigs at Manly and the Bulldogs, but. What I do know is that he got a lot of raps from the players when he was at Penrith for what he the systems he put in place there and his ability to work with um, uh, Cleary. So look, I think he's a I think he's a very positive addition because he'll you know again at the end of the day if you're not growing and learning and getting new ideas in, into the program then you're falling behind. So I'm, I'm glad that Barrett's coming on board. I think he'll add another he'll be another voice and a very respected voice to the work with Brown and Moses. So, yeah, I think he can help with some of those issues around around adding adding another wrinkle to our attack outside of the offload, push to the edges, which is terrific, and you don't want to lose that. But you also want to get a bit more precision around our set pieces, particularly in good ball sets, and I think Barrett will be, be very good at that. Bernie, you've got to know Brad uh, during your time at the Eels, and he really came into focus, uh, first of all, with the media trying to put a bit of a negative spin on uh, what was happening around his coaching, through to the players, um, definitely standing up and saying, look, we play for this bloke. And then uh, also they started to find, the media started to find all the positive stories around him. Uh, there was a lot of focus on how he was handling grand final week. From the outside looking in now, have you seen any change in him over the last year or two? It's it's difficult when I'm not as close to it as I used to be, but I do I, I do you know try and try and follow it pretty close. Like I think he's probably, from what I hear, he's probably maybe mellowed a little bit as his confidence and the team's performances have been very very good in the last four years. Um, you know, he's probably enjoying it. Um, to be to be honest with you, as he should. Um, I think there's been a focus on. Um, his building of relationships with players, which he's always been good at that, but I think he's even taken on, uh, viewed that as even more important. And I think, you know, that's why I find it an absolute joke when those rumours came out, you know, a couple of months ago that he'd lost the locker room and these, uh, it's just ridiculous. 
because I know he has a very strong relationship and he's very good at relationship building with the players. So I thought that was ridiculous. Um, I've also seen that last couple of years he's he's welcoming new ideas into the club, which I think for any leader is a good thing, whether you're a coach or a CEO or anybody in an organisation. When you welcome new ideas and new people that can bring new ideas, he welcomed, you know, he had Joey Johns in there a couple of years ago. He's welcomed Dennis and McGregor in in 2022. Uh, Trent Barrett's coming in in 2023. And the other thing too is that Brad now has coached the team well into the playoffs, obviously the grand final. That monkey of not getting past week two is off his back. Um, not not that you, you, he wouldn't have worried about that day to day, but it's still a nice thing to get past. And I think just getting his team to a grand final and knowing how to do that, what it entails, what success at that level looks like, it should boost his confidence as a coach. So, look, yeah, I think he's going to come into the prime years of his head coaching career now. And uh, I think the idea of bringing in other people with good ideas that he can bounce off, at the end of the day, it's Brad's responsibility of how they play tactically. Um, but I think it's, yeah, look, I think he's going to come into the best years of his coaching in the next four or five years. You're uniquely equipped to give us some perspective on this question, Bernie, but from your experience as a CEO at both the Roosters and the Eels, would Parramatta's corporate partners be happy with this season's outcome across both the NRL and NRLW? Oh, Absolutely. You know, anytime you get a team in a grand final, and this year Parramatta got two with the NRL and the NRLW, people around the club are happy, particularly your sponsors, um, because, you know, they're getting exposure. You're in big games. You're in the media all the time. Um, I know Andrew McHale, our head of commercial, does a terrific job. Um, he'd be engaging with our sponsors, and they'd feel engaged in the process. And for anybody associated with the club, any of the stakeholders, sponsors, fans, um, everybody engaged with the club, that that journey through the playoffs to the grand final, it doesn't get any better than that, as you guys know. Um, you're part of the broader Parramatta family, and it's it's a great journey to go to a grand final, experience grand final week. Everybody's very, very happy, and our sponsors will be ecstatic, and I'm sure the Eels are, have reinforced even further you know, the relations that they have with those corporate partners. What about the supporters? The quest for a title continues. Can we take heart in this season? <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, the fans are emotional and, you know, there's a, there's a saying you, what clubs are trying to do globally in, in professional sports is they want fans to buy emotional equity in the team. Well, the Eels have certainly done that. You know, they had the most members this year, up around 34, 35,000. I think potentially that could now go to 40,000 40, members next year. That would be a, a, ter- a terrific target. And unheard of and thought of, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. So, yes, look, I understand a number of fans are emotional and they're upset. Some thought that, you know, the the players just didn't do well enough in the grand final. And I get it. That's an emotional response. But when when I step back and look at it, because, you know, I I was very disappointed, as everybody else was on Sunday night. But when you look back and analyse it, um, I think the fans will regroup. I think, you know, Parramatta fans... Paramount is a big, huge club with a big fan base. And I, you know, I've been around the game a long while. There's no better fans than the Parramatta fans. Parramatta leads the number of members across the NRL, the 35,000 members that Parramatta currently has. They haven't won a comp for 36 years. Um, That says it all. The Parramatta fans are loyal. They're emotional. They're rabid. They're the best. Um, so, look, I think the fans will be upset for a little while, but I think by the time we kick off next year and, and the excitement comes up again and they they look back and say, look, 
we went to the grand final and played probably one of the great teams of the modern era. Um, they'll be back on board and uh, they'll, be as, uh, they'll be as excited as ever. So you've laid out a very interesting picture for the Parramatta Eels, Bernie. We've got a good core of the roster, but it's not perfect. There's a hole at right back row. There's probably holes on the bench. There's And like you said, in the back line, there's some question marks about our best back five. We've got some good new voices coming to the team and Trent Barrett. So there's reasons to be optimistic on top of Brad being you know, just an excellent coach all around. Let's get in early and try and put that all together as hard as it can be. Do you see the Parramatta Eels competing for a top four spot again next year in 2023? Absolutely. You know, they've finished, they've had, you know, 15 or 16 wins the last three years and they had 14 wins in 2019. They're, they're over the last four years, they're, they're averaging 65% win percentage, which is very, very good. Now, come back and look specifically at next year. Again, you know, I repeat myself a lot on, on this on these podcasts with the importance of the spine, the importance of the kicking game, etc. Look, if we can get Hodgson healthy and he can do a job, um, Moses and Brown and, and even our forwards getting over the ad line, they've become very used to the passing skills of Reed Marnie. Reed Marnie off the deck, passing off the ground, is outstanding. And some of the commentators, I think Cameron Smith might have said he may be the best uh, off the ground dummy half in the league. So we're going to have to get used to the service from Hodgson. So they're going to have to do a bit of work done when they all come back to training, particularly in the new year when they come back from the World Cup. If we can get Hodgson in the groove and in the system and getting Moses and Brown the way the ball the way they want it and getting the forwards over the ad line, which Hodgson is very good at bringing, the, bringing his big men over the ad line from his time at Canberra. If we can get the spine right and Hodgson stays healthy, we can fix our – we can quickly work out who's going to play left, centre and right edge and that, that combination of the back five. With the confidence the Eels have had, the core roster still being there, um, we should absolutely we should be aiming for top four. We should be aiming for top two, quite frankly, because the benefits of a home semi final, particularly at Combank, would be huge. So, mm-hmm. look, if the Eels stay healthy, health's always a critical thing across the entire roster. But there's no reason the Eels shouldn't be competing and, and have their target on that on a top four spot. Well, quite frankly, now the Eels realistic target and expectation should change. They should be looking to win the comp next year. Um, that's the target. You know, mm-hmm. this year it might have been top four. Now, you've got to get in top four to win the comp. We know that. So, yeah, the Eels should definitely be a top four. Um, and uh, I think they'll, they have the pieces in place to do that. And before we let you go, Bernie, a uh, bit of an impromptu question, though. Between now and the 2023 season, there's obviously a Rugby League World Cup that lies there. Uh, anything particular looking forward to out of this tournament? Anyone you can see sort of rising up and surprising one of the, the big two or three teams? Well, I think it's going to be fascinating. I think this could be the best World Cup of all time because of the evenness of, of your top teams. You've got your traditional teams of Australia, England and New Zealand. I think New Zealand Ford Pack is particularly strong. Um, and with Hughes and Brown playing off the – Dylan Brown playing off the back of that pack and you've still got Joey Manu at the back, they've got points in them and they're, they're big and tough. But, of course, there's the excitement around Tonga and Samoa. Uh, they've got legitimate teams that can take down any team on any given day. So this is probably the most legitimate World Cup the, the game's ever had because you've, you've literally got five teams there that would like their chances in every single game, and that's not always been the case. No, absolutely not. So, look, I think it's a very exciting for the game. How the game parlays off the back of this to further promote the development of the game is critical. I'm a bit worried at the moment at a macro level around the game of where we're dedicating the money that comes into the game. Everybody seems to have their hands out for the additional monies that are coming in through TV. And by that, I mean 
the, the players through the Rugby League Players Association want more money. The clubs want more money. The, the state leagues want more money. You know, there's only so much money that can go around, and this is where the commission will earn their money. They're there to have the broader, long-term strategic betterment of the game. That's their mandate at a fundamental level. They need to ensure that the game is pumping enough money into the development. And by that, I mean development of fans. There should be a very, very strong focus in the game. And I know I'm getting off the World Cup a bit here, but it's a very, I'm a great believer that the game needs to be dedicating a lot of money to the development of new fans. The 6- to 12-year-olds, we've got to win the battle for the hearts and minds of 6- 12-year-olds. If we give you know, a little bit more money to clubs and a little bit more money to players and a little bit more money here and there and not dedicate it and give it the appropriate financial and human resources that we need to the development of our young fans, we'll wake up in 10 or 15 years and we won't have our next tier of fans yep. coming through. And not only that, those fans become our players. So, you know, that's this is a I've just hit on a very, very uh, macro level here, but that's very, very important. But it does dovetail back to the World Cup because – the game has an obligation outside of just Australia because the NRL is the biggest, strongest rugby league competition in the world. It generates far and away the most money. I have real concerns about the the, the English rugby league at the moment. They've just put they've just done an extensive uh, review around what they should be doing strategically in the future. I think the NRL has to be a part of that and be cognizant of it and assist where possible because we need a healthy English rugby Absolutely, league. Absolutely, yeah. 100%. And dovetailing off that. We need to be having, you know, we need to do as much as we can for the New Zealand Rugby League and the Pacific Nations, Tonga and Samoa. So there's a lot of work to be done there at the broader strategic level. Um, but I think, look, the World Cup is going to be terrific and let's hope that off the back of a successful World Cup, the broader strategic decisions that are, that are good for the game on a global level are, are implemented. And um, just before you go, um, I do have... I'm not sure if I'm going to be putting you on the spot with this or not, Bernie, but you touched on young uh, supporters in the game and becoming the, the players of the game. Have Is rugby league going to be pulling the right rein in eliminating competition games for youngsters until the age of 13? Yeah, look, I, I've, I've just read a little bit about it. I, I haven't read enough here. People, have, Other people have asked me that and I've said, look, I don't really know enough of the research and did they talk to the right people? And I, I understand that they, my inkling is they did talk to, you know, coaches of young teams, et cetera. Look, it's an argument. You could, you could probably make an argument for both sides of that. The reality is, you know, they're trying to do the right thing by young players to make the game enjoyable. Um, when I was at the Eels, um, there was a program run through the Eels and it was, it was run by Matt Brady, and it was about coaching the coaches because, you know, there's always been problems around, you know, coaches trying to coach an 11-year-old about slide defense and, and block plays, which is absurd. That's, that's, that NRL game is a very different game than the, than the game that young kids play. So there was a, a system around coaching the coaches and basically focusing on fundamentals and focusing on fun and enjoyment. So I think that's been the brief around this to do that. Now, whether that works and not keeping score and not keeping a competition table and minimising tackling and contact, 
I just don't know enough about it at the time. But I think it's. I think I'm glad they did it in the sense of that it's raised these issues to the top of the discussion points. And at the end of the day, when you when you've got six to twelve year old kids, you want them. You want them to, when you ask them, do you like going to practice, do you want to say, yeah, I love it. I love getting out there with my mates and running around. And you don't want them saying, oh, the coach yells at me, I'm not enjoying it, et cetera. Yep. And, you, and when, yep. at the end of the season, when you ask all these kids from 6 to 12, do you want to play next year, you want every one of them saying, oh, absolutely, I'm coming back, I love it. And that comes back from the enjoyment. Now, you, you want them to be competitive and try their best, but uh, – Let's hope those fundamental objectives of just fun and fundamentals yep. are part of this whole process. Well, Bernie, yep. as always, it's been an absolute blast to have you on the show. Like we sort of capped off the show initially, not the circumstances we wanted to meet you on to talk about the grand finals, but that's a reality of rugby league, it's a reality of sports. You don't always get the big trophy and sometimes you've got to drag yourself back the next season and run it back. Uh, but, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure this journey for you in 2022 and we look forward to chatting for you next year as the Eels look to go one step further in both the NRL and NRLW. My pleasure, boys. Good to chat. Thank you, mate. Thanks, Bernie. Yeah, always an absolute pleasure to have Bernie Gurr on the tip sheet 60s. Really nice to be able to just sit back and look at both macro and micro level stuff for the Eels out of the grand final and moving into the 2023 seasons and beyond. We're so fortunate to be able to call on Bernie for his input in not just the uh, football analytics, but also the analytics around the running of the club, and and just to get that that full perspective on what our season has looked like, what it was like getting to the grand final. Man, I really enjoyed listening to Bernie's takes today because it's as always. I feel like it's an education every time we get to speak to him. Absolutely, yeah, it's a an educational process, and it's one that's even as part of the show. You know, it's so cool to be part of. So hopefully everyone's listening, everyone that's listening, sorry, uh, equally enjoys it like we did. Yeah, just it's a shame we couldn't go one step further in both the NRL and NRLW. But like we said, that is sports 60s, you know, that sometimes your best isn't good enough, especially when you come up against a team that plays perfect football in the case that what the Knights and the Panthers did, just about perfect football in grand finals. But as always, there's always next year. And like you said, there is no off season. So we're going to keep you guys up to date week by week, as you get through all the content, whether it's Parramatta Eels, whether it's Rugby League World Cup, whether it's NRL News, there's going to be plenty to break down and digest, and we'll be there each episode. Yeah, so stick with us, and uh, for now, go your wheels.